James chapter 1. We're going to finally finish chapter 1 and get a good start on chapter 2 tonight. Uh, and uh, in fact, the, the segment on chapter, in chapter 2 uh, was, it was long enough that I was thinking, I don't know if we're going to be able to finish this, but it's really one of those all together segments that all goes together. So we'll fly through that when we get there. But James chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, already, you know, James has already introduced this idea that, that uh, uh, faith without works is dead. And he's going to say that obviously very clearly in coming uh, chapters. But let's begin reading verse 26, chapter 1. If anyone considers himself religious, uh, which by the way, you know, now in recent years, the, the term religious has gotten a really bad rap. Uh, people say, oh, I'm not religious. I want a relationship. Well, you know, the, the truth is it's both. Um, y- you know, there's it, it, nothing wrong with being religious um, it, as long as you understand what the Scripture defines as being religious. And that's what James is getting in, get into. He said, if anyone considers himself religious and, does not yet, and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless as this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So we're going to stop there. We're going to pick it up in, uh, in chapter 2 in a moment. But uh, the word that he uses here for religious, it, it, it specifically it's not talking about an attitude or anything. It refers to external religious rituals and liturgies, routines, ceremonies. That's what he's talking about specifically. The Jewish historian Josephus used the word to describe worship in the temple at Jerusalem. So obviously if it's used that way, you know, that was something God commanded. So in that sense, religion is not anti-God. It's not anti-Christianity in any way whatsoever. And, and Paul used the, this to, to actually to refer to his uh, former life as, as a zealous Pharisee. So uh, and. and so it's very clearly talking about religious activity is what he's referring to here. But what, what he's going to get across and what, what he has been saying and what we're going to be looking at tonight is that such things as attending church services and, and church activities and doing volunteer work and following various rituals and ceremonies and saying your prayers and even having the right theology, while all of those things are good, all, there's nothing wrong with all of those things. They do have some value, but he is saying that they have no spiritual value in and of themselves apart from true faith in Jesus Christ. You can do all the right things, but if you don't have faith, then they're meaningless. So you can see how James is really kind of approaching this from both sides because, because he's saying if you have faith but don't have works, then the faith is dead. But he says if you have the works but don't really have the faith, then that's worthless, that's meaningless. Um, and a person trusting in outward things will, will always, they will sooner or later expose his or her faithlessness with their mouth. That, that's what the, the reason for this is because we as human beings, we do not have the power, the inward power to bridle our own tongue. James talks about it. He's going to talk about it a little bit later. We're going to get, get to that. He's going to we're going to deal with the tongue a little more in depth in a later part of the, of the, the book of James, um, which is always, like I said in the intro, I, you know, when you start talking about this, it's either you're either saying amen or ouch. <laughs> There's nothing in between when you start talking about the tongue. But we don't have the power to, to bridle the tongue. And James later on says, no man 
can control the tongue. Uh, so, it, but so the the it's the the reality is that a corrupt and unholy heart will eventually be exposed by a corrupt and unholy uh, by corrupt and unholy speech. Jesus put it this way. We all know, uh, and James and Jesus' teachings parallel very closely, but this is what Jesus said. Talking to the Pharisees, he said, You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you can fake it for a long time. You can go to church and say the right things and do the right things and say, I believe the right things. But if you don't truly have faith in Christ, then what's really inside will eventually bubble up out of the the mouth. Because what's in your heart will eventually come out and you'll say those things. So the tongue uh, is an indicator of of this true spirituality. Now I want to be clear, it is not the only indicator of true spirituality, but I also believe it is one of the most reliable. And, And it's not just saying, you know, I want to be clear about this, because it's not just... Um, when you're talking about the tongue and, and being an indicator of what's in the heart, it's not just what we think of when we think about the, the problems with our tongue, you know, of outbursts of anger or lies, but, but also things like gossip. I think in the church in America, we tend to downplay gossip. We think it's not so bad, but the Bible is very harsh on the gossip. And, and so, uh, you know, if, if you are, find yourself uh, caught up in this, uh, habit of gossip, then it's something to look at your heart because there's something going on there. But it, uh, it, it has been in, estimated that the average person will speak some 18,000 words in a day. That's enough to fill a 54-page book. And, and some people <laughs> will speak well above that. That's the average. Some will get fewer words in. Um, I, I remember there was a missionary evangelist. I used to love to hear him speak. He was one of those guys who had so many one-line jokes that he'd be telling a story and you'd be sitting there crying and then he'd throw a joke in and you're laughing and then he goes back to another story and you're crying. And you're like, I don't even know what's going on here anymore. But, but he, used to, he used to joke about, he said that uh, his wife speaks about 2,000 words a minute with gusts up to, to 5,000. <laughs> so he said one time he and his wife got their false teeth mixed up and he preached for an hour and a half before he could even stop. Uh, but some people speak more, but I don't even know why I'm going on about this stuff. But uh, in a year, using those figures I just mentioned, in a year that amounts to 66 800-page volumes and they tell us that up to one-fifth of the average person's life is spent talking. And here's the thing. This is why the tongue is such an important thing. We talk a lot. Even those that, don't, that, are, that are more quiet. There are a lot of words that you, that you speak. Some may be you know, way out there further than you. But we speak a lot. The tongue is in use a lot. And, and if God does not control a man's tongue... It is a sure indicator that he doesn't control the man's heart either. Knowing how to speak well is not nearly as important as having control of our speech. This is what he's saying. Knowing what to say, knowing where to say it, knowing when to say it. And not only that, and this is the hard one for most of us, knowing when not to speak, knowing when to be silent. That's, that's, a, that's something that has to come from the Lord helping us in that. And one way that others will know whether or not our faith is real is by what we choose to talk about 
and the way we speak. And in fact, the truth is, what I choose to speak about reveals what I truly love. How many of you uh, are grandparents? Do we have any grandparents here? You know what? You cannot talk to grandparents very long without grandkids coming into the conversation. You know why that is? Because they desperately love those grandkids. You talk about those things and those people whom you love. And so if we truly love Jesus, guess who's going to be in our speech? It's just the way it is. Uh, We're deceived when we think we can keep our beliefs inside or express them merely through rituals and and, uh, church activities and, and have no real obedience that kind of faith is so useless before God that it's, it can be considered no faith at all. And that kind of faith has no power over human hearts because it doesn't allow God to be at work in us. Believing in a God to whom we, we uh, refuse to submit or obey is in actuality just another expression of sinful rebellion. In, in the end, it doesn't matter whether we consider ourselves religious The real question is, what does God consider us to be? And any religious practice that does not influence the heart, and therefore, if it influences heart, it will influence the actions. Any religious practice that does not do those things is worthless in God's sight, is what he said. Verse 27, though, that's the negative side, but here's the positive side. He said, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, James turns to a relationship where God is now allowed to direct the terms of the behavior. So he's talking about uh, false religion. Now he's talking about good, pure, true religion. And the the genuineness of anyone's faith is, is not determined by his or her own qualifications or standards, but by God's qualifications and standards and, and one of the things we learn here from what James is saying is that acceptable religion, true faith, is actually very practical. It's not just up in the sky, you know, uh, pie in the sky kind of thing. It's very practical. And, and outward rituals cannot substitute for, out, for outward righteousness. Church services cannot substitute for our service to God. Inward ras- rationalizations are no substitute for inward righteousness Pure and faultless religion is not perfect observance of rules. This is one of the things that he's getting across here in this is that it's not about the law. It's not by being perfect in, in keeping the, uh, our observance of the rules, but it, but it is a spirit of love and service that provide, pervades our hearts and lives. And we're going to see that this is what he's saying. Real faith inspires this kind of a lifestyle a lifestyle of love and service. That if you truly have faith in Christ, if you really do love Him, it's going to show up in your actions. And one of the things that's going to happen is you're going to love other people and you're going to serve other people. That's what he's talking about here. And he explains this idea of religion in terms of, a, of this faith that acts itself out and our conduct must be keeping in faith. And by the way, I want to say this. Some people historically have taken this verse and they've tried to say this is the exclusive exhaustive definition of Christianity that is not what James is trying to say here this is not you can't take one verse or even part of a verse and then and then uh, create a, um, a, a, a doctrine from that one verse and ignore the rest of the Bible and the rest of the New Testament makes it very clear 
that there are other aspects to Christianity besides these things. But James's point here, he's trying to make the point that if we truly have faith in Christ, it will show up in how we live, how we treat other people. That's the real point he's trying to make. He's saying that this is not this is not the exhaustive definition of Christianity, but he's saying this is important to Christianity. And he presents two simple and very practical actions of obedient faith that almost anyone can take. And he, he says that, that that religion, the religion that God accepts is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Now, orphans and widows, we've talked about some of this before, but they're often mentioned in the concerns of the early church because they were the most obviously poor in first century Israel. You know, you've got widows, and, and maybe you don't know this, but most of you, I think, probably are aware that widows had no access to inheritance in Jewish circles. If their husband passed away, they didn't get an inheritance from that. That's not the way it worked in their, in their culture. Uh, they could not get, go out and get a job, uh, but, and the inheritance would then go to the oldest son. Now, the oldest son was supposed to have the responsibility to care for his mother. But they didn't always do that. In fact, you know, you can read in the, in the Gospels the places where, um, uh, uh, I can't remember it now, I, hadn't, I didn't think about it before now to look it up, but there are places where they, they would say, I'm I, uh, I, uh, going to uh, consecrate my inheritance to God. And what they would do by doing that, they'd say, therefore, since this is God's now, I don't have to take care of my mother. I don't have to take care of those that are dependent upon me. And, and it was just a way to get around their own responsibility and a, a, a way to get around actually spending the money to do what they were supposed to do. But a widow was, it, if they had a fa no family member who was willing to care for them, they were reduced to begging or maybe uh, uh, selling themselves as, as a servant and, or, or, or just starving. That was really their only options. And then, of course, the plight of orphans is, is a little more obvious to us. Because if a child's parent died, they were completely helpless to fend for themselves, you know, and, and in both cases, there was no life insurance policy, policies, there were no welfare programs to support these people. They were relying on the people around them, and James is saying, listen, uh, it, it, the, he, what he's, the principle he's trying to get across here is, is that we have a responsibility, if we're followers of Jesus, we have a responsibility to help those who can't help themselves, this is what he's saying. The widows and orphans cannot help themselves, which is, which is one of the reasons why I believe for every true follower of Christ that the abortion issue is such a, a powerful and moving issue because those, those unborn babies cannot speak up for, for themselves. And that's why it's such an important issue. I believe that falls under this category very, very uh, strongly. And, and so uh, when, when we give, when we give with no hope of receiving anything in return, then we show what it really means to serve others. And we really reflect the heart of God. Because listen, he has given us everything, hasn't he? Everything. And what do we have to, to offer him that is of any value to him? I mean, we're of value to him, but there's nothing that he needs from me. He is self-sustaining. He doesn't need anything. He's God. By definition, he doesn't need anything. And yet he gives. So when we give in this way, these are the moments where we most reflect the heart of God to the world around us. Um, now, the thing is, looking after hurting people, 
is stressful and inconvenient work. How many of you have noticed that people in need don't seem to work around your schedule? <laughs> they just don't. You know, because problems arise and crises arise, they don't, there doesn't, you know, you don't look at the calendar and say, oh, six o'clock Friday evening, there's a crisis coming. No, it's going to be inconvenient, it's going to be stressful, and yet this is, this is how we're to be involved in offering ourselves to people. So, but then the other part of that definition that he said there, he says, religion that God accepts also includes keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. Now this has to do more with holiness. Um, and, and this is where, uh, when we start talking about holiness, it's a, it's a situation where uh, many, many people in, in the past have abused this idea of holiness and they've tried to make holiness something that you put on on the outside and hope that it so, you know, soaks in slowly or whatever. Um, but, it, but it's really more about being polluted on the inside. And when he uses the words, the, uh, when he, the world there, he, he's referring to both fallen mankind, but he's also talking about the ungodly spiritual systems of philosophy and morals and values. And it's very clear, every follower of Christ, follower of Christ knows that, that the, those who are unsaved, that their value system, their morals, their philosophy is very different than what the Bible teaches. So that's what he's talking about. And he's talking about keeping ourselves from being polluted by the world. But when he says that, I want you to understand this. He's not referring to spiritual perfection. He, you know, he's not saying you, you can't, you know, if, to, to keep yourself from being polluted by the world does not mean you have to be spiritually perfect because if that's the case, we're all in trouble, right? Every Christian falls short of the Lord's standards. And I mean, everybody in this room, we, we, at times we find ourselves doing things that we know are wrong or not doing things that we know are right, right? And both of those things are wrong. They're, they're both sinful. It, 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 it's not about our perfection because it's not our perfection that offers us a proof of our salvation, but rather it's the fact that our attitudes toward those things have changed. Christ has changed the way we see ourselves, the way we see the world, and therefore it's, it's the hating of our imperfections and seeking with God's help and God's power to correct those things that show us that the Holy Spirit has done something inside of us. It, it, you know, before I got saved, when I did something, you know, when I told a lie, before I got saved, I didn't care. I didn't care that I told you a lie, if, especially if I got away with it. I just moved on. It's like, Haha, I could put one over on them. But after I got saved, now when I, if I tell a lie, it eats at me. And I don't want to be that kind of a person. That's the evidence that the Holy Spirit's been at work. And, and the reality is, the truth is, in, in his uh, uh, inmost heart, the genuine Christian longs to speak and do only those things that are holy and pure and loving and honest and truthful and upright. And, and, and that's a change inside of our heart. And that's, but the love of God and the love of the world and love of the things of the world are totally inc incompatible and mutually exclusive. John wrote this in 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, we, we know very clearly he's not talking about the people of the world because John 3.16 says that God so loved the world. And he's talking about the people of the world. But what he's talking about here, he's saying you can't love the way the world does things. You can't love the way the world sees 
morality and right and wrong. You can't love the world system and, and, and love the Father at the same time. And if you love the world, if you love those things, then the love of the Father cannot be in you. And, and, and this is uh, similar in Romans 12 too, Paul said this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may, be, may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So this is the change that takes place in our mind. Transformation comes to us where we are freer and freer from the things that are sinful and we hate those things more and more because our minds are renewed by the, by the Word and by the Spirit. You know, listen, if you want to change, if there's any part of your life that you want to change, it doesn't start by saying, uh, you know, I'm going to be different tomorrow. Because that's just words. Starts by changing the way you think. How do you do that? Well, it's very simple. I'm, now, and by the way, simple does not always, does not necessarily mean easy. Right? I, I used to play golf. I haven't played in years. Golf is a simple game. You hit the ball into the hole. That's simple. That does not mean it's easy. Right? It's the difference between simple and easy. If you want to be changed, it's a simple process, but not necessarily an easy process. Here's the process. You identify those thought patterns in your, in your life that are, that, are going, that are in opposition to, to who you want to be as a follower of Jesus. And then you get into the Word of God and begin to see how God, what God says about it. And you begin to replace those thoughts with what God says in His Word. And the Word of God in your mind will begin to bring transformation. Because we are, He said, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What, what we have to know is that what we feed our minds, what we feed our spirits, we eventually become. We have to be careful with this. And a person who claims to have true faith in Christ and yet allows the things of this world to pollute their life, they're really walking in self-deception. So a person who does not have compassion for others, who is not concerned about living righteously and whose satisfaction is found in his sin cannot be a true disciple of Christ and a child of God. And, and in essence, he says that biblical Christianity is a matter of obedience to God's word and it's reflected by our honesty in regard to ourselves. We're not going to deceive ourselves. It's reflected by our selfishness, self, not selfish, selflessness in regard to the needs of others. And it's reflected by our un uncompromising moral and spiritual stand in regard to the world. All right, let's move on to chapter 2. I'm going to read the first three, 13 verses, and then we're going to go back and breaking down, uh, break it down into smaller segments. But I want you to hear all of it together because it all, all flows in one single thought. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who love Him? But you have insulted the poor. 
Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not, <clears throat> excuse me, the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So in James 1, 19 through 27, James encourages us to put our beliefs into practice. And now in this passage, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, he gives us a very practical lesson and he breaks it down and gives us an example about not showing favoritism. He's, he says, starts off by saying, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. And he addresses the readers as, as my brothers. So the readers were members of the church. They were his dear brothers in the, in the Christian faith. And so James is talking here. He's dealing with a family issue. And he's explaining to them because, uh, and by saying, my, my brothers, he emphasizes the togetherness of real obedience to Christ. And he appeals to the single fact that, uh, that binds all of these people together, and that is that they are all believers. So it's significant that he says, my brothers. His reference here is not to common human values or to general goodwill, but it's rather to the strongest bond that the believer can, can claim, and that is the family relationship of the church. And we can't ever forget that, that, that there's, there is a deep relationship in the church. That's what, you know, that's why in, in, we're told in, later, in other parts of Scripture, it says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Um, and, and, and part of the reason for that is because there is such a deep relationship. And you know, we are a body. We are a family. When you take one part out, it just isn't right. It's just not right anymore. Um, but because of their shared position as believers, James' readers were to follow the instructions that he was about to give them. So he's saying, okay, now we're all brothers. We're all together. We're all in the family together. We're all in the same body here. So now I'm getting ready to say something to you. You need to follow what I'm saying. Because uh, among believers in Christ, there exists a common accountability to God's word. Biblical truth applies to all of us, all of us. In fact, that's one of the one of the ways you can determine, you can measure if something is biblically true, if it's a spiritual truth or not, and that is that it will apply to everyone at all times and all places, no matter what. Anybody that says, "Well, I've got a revelation from God to you," but to you you hear it and you say, "Well, you know what? That would not work in Nigeria." You can just you can sh just file that away because. If it's a biblical truth, it's going to apply to all humanity, no matter what the situation, no matter what the circumstances. It, and the truth is that at times all of us need to be held accountable for our claims, don't we? Anybody here? Some, some people are nodding their heads and some people are like, I don't want to, I don't want to answer that question. Uh, but if, if we want to be called Christians, what, and this is the accountability that James is bringing. 
If we want to be called Christians, then our life needs to display the effects of that belief. It has to show up. You know, I read a story about a man who was working with teenagers who were uh, involved in gangs in one of the high crime areas of New York City. And, and through his ministry, scores and scores of young people came to a personal faith in Jesus Christ. And they were, they were set free from the slavery of crime and violence. And, and as this community of faith began to grow, these new Christians began to reach out with love to their former gang uh, members. And, and whenever one of those tough gang members would profess to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, these more mature Christians who had been walking with the Lord for a while, would be, they were concerned. They wanted to make sure that they were really sincere about the commitment. And this is what they would say to them. And, and it may not be theologically perfect, but it gets the idea across. They would look at them and say, don't tell us that you're a Christian. We'll tell you. The whole idea was, in other words, don't merely say you're a Christian. Prove it by the way in which you, you live your life. That's what they were trying to say. Authentic Christianity is not merely a matter of talk, but it must show itself in appropriate action. We'll, we will be known as Christians, not simply because we say we're Christians, not simply because we say we have faith, not simply because we say we believe in Jesus, but we will be known as Christians by how we demonstrate that faith in our own lifestyles. In fact, Jesus said something very similar, didn't he? When he said, they will know that you are my followers by what? By that you have love one for another. It's about our actions. He's saying, there's evidence. The faith is, the faith is you know, you, you're not saved because you do these things. But once you come to Christ and you have this true faith, it will show up in the way you live. So James says, don't show favoritism. Another translation uh, for, for that would really be, he, he, the correct translation would be stop showing favoritism because the construction of the Greek, uh, Greek shows that James was forgetting, forbidding a practice that was already in progress. So these believers were apparently judging people based only on external things like physical appearance and status and wealth and power. And as a result, they were pandering to and being unduly influenced by people who represented these positions of prestige. Listen, this is, this is still something that happens in churches. You know, somebody comes in, they look like they got money, and all of a sudden everybody's like, oh, yeah, well, let's get those people in. And they're trying to be real nice to them. But somebody walk, walks in who's homeless, you know, maybe they don't get the same attention paid to them because they're like, well, we, we want to get the rich person to be part of our church because, you know, then they can help fund things. And so it's still, still a temptation. This is not something that was unique to the first century church here. So what's going on here? The, 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 the Jews had a practice of seating the most important people judged by their society. They would seat them nearest to the sacred scrolls in the synagogue. And then other people who were considered less important, less significant, they would be seated in, in the back. Well, this unhealthy practice apparently was still being carried on by some Christians. And so James speaks out against this practice because, here's the thing, it, it is our relationship with Christ that gives us dignity. It gives us value. It gives us importance. Not our profession, not what we do for a living, not our possessions, how much money we have in the bank. It's the fact that we know Christ. 
Then he gives us a very real life example. Let's look at verse 2 again. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So James launches into this very vivid hypothetical case study. Two men are entering into, the, into a meeting, a church meeting, and we can assume that both men were visiting because they're described only by their appearance. So they don't know anything more about them, just what they look like. One man was rich. It was obvious because he had this fine clothing and he has this jewelry on. He's got a ring on and a ring signified upper class and power. The rings were the same kind of visible status symbols that cars function as today. You know, today somebody drives up in a beat up, uh, you know, uh, some beat up Kia, you know, from whatever, 1993 beat up Kia. You're not going to be thinking to yourself, ooh, now that's a person with some status. But somebody rolls up in church and parks as in a Rolls Royce, you're going to be like, whoa, this is somebody. So cars kind of serve as a status symbol. That's one of the things that houses are kind of the same thing today too. But that's the way rings were. Somebody walks in with this big ring on, suddenly you know, oh man, this person's got some juice. Well, the other man was poor. And he was dressed in shabby clothes. James makes it clear that the action about to be taken, if if not guarded against, will be based entirely on the appearance of these two guests. The rich man was shown special attention. I mean, he impressed the believers. He was an impressive person, and he became the object of special service and deference. And the rich man was singled out and escorted to a comfortable and favored seat. Then the poor man was treated as inferior. He got standing room only. Hey, stand back, back in the corner over there. Just get out of the way. Or, or he, he was told to, to find a seat on the floor. There's some place, you can find some place to sit down, just whatever. It, it's, as, it's as if the poor man is being told, listen, stay apart from your betters. You know, uh, the, the better people get the seats, but you stay apart from them. And he's given neither dignity nor comfort. Well, what's the answer to that? Well, here's the thing. A lot of people in our culture want to say, we should get the rich. We We should punish them. But the Christian answer is not reverse discrimination. Treating the poor like royalty and treating the rich like scum. Our goal as followers of Jesus is to treat people equally without consideration of their status. Because no one is unworthy to be seated. This is a principle that we have to get a hold of as a church, as individuals, but this is, this is something every church needs to get a hold of, and that is this. Every person is valued and is also the focus of our ministry. So if they walk in and they've got nothing, and it's obvious they've got nothing, that person is still valuable. So you value them and you focus your ministry on them. If they walk in and they seem to have everything the world, the world uh, offers, but you know what? They're here for a reason. That means there's something missing. They're looking for something. So that person is valued and you focus your ministry on them. And you focus on finding out where their need is and you meet that need. 
the, the thing is, you know, a lot of people think that in a church, they think like, for example, the greeting ministry, they think it's sort of like a starting ministry. It's a throwaway ministry. I don't believe that at all. I believe, honestly, I believe that is one of the most vital and important ministries in any church. Because how you greet those people that are coming in, treating every person with dignity and with value, regardless of what they look like, regardless of how they're dressed, makes a huge statement from the moment they walk in. Whether the greeting is reserved or, 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 or enthusiastic, what is most clearly communicated is its genuineness and our welcome of, of guests has an effect on those people. In fact, you know, they say uh, when a guest comes into a church, they decide within the first 10 minutes whether they're coming back to that church or not. You know what that tells me? Before I ever get up and speak, before I, I may preach the best sermon I ever preached in my life, they made their choice before I ever got to the pulpit. What happens in the first 10 minutes? It's how the people are treating them. That's, that's what they're looking at. I mean, in fact, I've just heard stories this, this past uh, uh, few days about people saying, about uh, other experiences that they've had at churches and, and how nobody spoke to them or whatever it might be. It, it, listen, if you, if you want to have a significant ministry in your church, you, you, need to, the, you don't even have to be on a team of greeters. But, but keep, be on the lookout. Look for newcomers. Look for people who walk in to your church and then make them feel welcome. Welcome. Make them feel loved. Make them feel valued. Go up there and go to them and talk to them. Introduce yourself. Find out who they are. Find out a little, about, about, a little bit about them. Use their name when you speak to them. You, you, you ha, value them. And when you do that, you can make a significant difference because I know that the decision to follow Christ has often been made easier by a warm and honest welcome at the door of a church. They say, you know what? I feel loved by these people. Maybe this love that they're talking about from Christ is real. And it breaks down barriers. So you can make a difference. That's a little side note. James, though, after telling this story and setting up this scenario, he asked them a question. He said, have you not, if you've done this, if you favored the poor, the, the rich and, and, uh, and, and disregarded the poor, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, James fully expects his readers to answer yes. Yep, that's what we've done. He condemned their behavior because... Uh, this behavior is not acceptable and he condemns it because Christ made them all one. Paul later wrote in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You can add to that because you could say slave nor free would, might fall into this category, but you could add to that list very easily, there is neither rich nor poor. In other words, it makes no difference who you are. We're all one in Christ. And by discriminating in this way, these believers were ignoring that fact. They, and they were therefore forced to admit that they were discriminating against the poor person. And they were becoming unjust judges with evil thoughts, making their judgments by worldly standards, not by God's standards. And, and he makes it very clear what God's standards are in a moment because he gives us the example from God. Um, and, and, and we'll see that in a moment. But... Uh, uh, as Christians, 
They professed obedience to Christ, but their conduct de- defied him. And uh, uh, well, anyway, I, I mentioned that uh, he, he gives God's example. Let me, let me show it to you. Verse 5 he said, Listen, my dear brothers, here's his example. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? He's saying, You're rejecting the poor, but that's not the way, that's not the heart of God because God chose the poor. Jesus' first followers were, were common people. In, in a social system that gave poor people very little uh, hope at all, Jesus' message to them was certainly good news. The, the poor people may not have mattered in that society, but they mattered very much to God. Jesus made that very clear by the way He treated poor people. That, now, I want to make this also clear. By saying that, that uh, has not God chosen those who are poor, that does not, that does not mean that rich people are doomed and that poor people are automatically saved. That's not what he's saying at all. That's, that, that's not the point of this uh, passage. Uh, the, the point is Christianity offered much to the poor, but we also know that it also demanded much of the rich. To whom much is given, much will be required. We all know the story of the rich, rich young ruler. And... and uh, we, know, we, we don't know much about him, but we know that there was something about him that the Bible says that Jesus loved him. That there's something that moved Jesus. He said, man, boy, I love this guy. I would love for him to get this and understand this. And he, and he came and he said, what must I do to inherit in eternal life? Well, he's already off because he's asking, what, what can I do? He's already missing the point because it's not about what he can do. It's about what Jesus can do. What can I do to have this? And Jesus, you know, we all know the story that he, he said, he said, he goes through the, all these different things. And he says, there's one thing you lack. He said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. He, he's, he's making a point there, really. He's saying, you're really following a different God here. You, you value your money more than you value me. So I want you to get rid of that so you can embrace me. Because you can't grab something if your hands are already full. And it says in Matthew 19, 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And that was the point where, you know, the disciples, Jesus said, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than, uh, than, than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. And the disciples were flabbergasted. They're like, how is this possible? Because in their culture, if you were rich, that meant you were blessed by God. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not what it means at all. And they're all confused. Uh, but, uh, but the point is that Jesus went on and said, hey, you know, it sounds impossible, but with men it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, yeah, even the rich can be saved, but it's a harder road for them. Why would it be a harder road for the rich to get saved? Well, because it's harder for the rich to see that they need anything. It's harder for the rich to see their own spiritual poverty because they, they don't lack anything in the world, and it's hard for them to see that they lack anything anywhere else. And, and, and so the rich are not excluded from the kingdom, just as the poor are not chosen due to any merit of poverty. You don't get in because you're poor. You don't get held out because you're rich. It's all about what Christ does. 
Verse 6, he says, But you have insulted the poor. It is, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the, one, uh, not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? And the word translated for, a word for insulted, that's translated insulted, literally means dishonored. So James' readers have dishonored the poor because they did not treat them the way that God treats them. God chose them. God embraced them. They were putting them in the, you know, pushing them to the margins. And, and in doing so, they dishonored the poor. They dishonored the very people that God had honored by calling them uh, by the name of Jesus. And, and so he asked, James asked his readers to listen carefully while, while he reminds them of the role the rich tended to play in their society. Uh, because during those days, the rich exploited the poor for profit. So, you know, it's, it still goes on today. Uh, the, they, the rich dragged them into court. You say, what is he talking about there? It was probably uh, dragged them into court concerning debt because they would uh, often then be thrown into debtor's prison, that sort of thing. And then they, they often slandered the name of Jesus. But James's answer uh, in, in what, how, how do we treat the rich, even though there are a lot of rich people that are that sneer at Christianity. It's still true today. Many, many wealthy people reject Christianity and they uh, will mock us and that sort of thing, but, but they still, they can't see that they need anything like that. But, the, but James does not give us the option of retaliation. There's, there's no room to say, get the rich before they get you. James's answer is in verse 8. It's very simple. James's answer is love. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. And that doesn't apply to rich or poor. It's to anybody. Love is the source from which our attitudes toward others should flow. We are to show favor. Here's the point he's trying to make. They were showing favoritism to the rich. What James is saying, you need to show favor to everybody. To everybody, whether they're rich or poor. You know, I heard some, somebody say a long time ago, and once in a while I, I try to make myself remember it, but if you're like me, I remember something for a while, it rattles around in my brain, then it sort of falls out, and then later I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. But somebody once said this, um, and I think it's really powerful. The next time you're at... Wendy's or Arby's or Walmart or wherever you are driving down the interstate. That's how this is the, I think the Lord threw that one in on me right there just to make me think through this. But when you see somebody, maybe they're not being very nice. Maybe they're being rude. Maybe they're driving ridiculously bad, whatever it might be. To be able to look at them and say, that's God's favorite. That's one of God's favorite right there. Changes things. We're, we're to be kind, overlooking all the other superficial things. And our attitudes and actions toward others should be guided by love. But look, look at verse 9. I'm going to try to hurry. I want to get this in. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. This is a significant thing that he brings in here because he's talking about how breaking one part of the law breaks all of it and helps us understand it. it says for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it 
For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now that's significant there. We're going to come back to that in a minute because he's tying there, breaking one law and not the other. He's saying the problem is that you're, you're offending the one who said both. You're sinning against God, not just breaking the law. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Now, so what James is doing here, he's not, trivi- he's not going to uh, trivialize their actions. Uh, so showing favoritism is not a minor transgression. It's not some, oh, it's just an unfortunate oversight. According to James, he says it is sin, and those engaged in this action are lawbreakers. Discrim- discrimination against anyone, whether on the basis of dress race, social class, wealth. It's a clear violation of the royal law of love. We must treat all people as we would want to be treated. We've got to treat all people with love. We shouldn't ignore the rich because then we would be withholding our love. But we also must not favor them for what they can do for us and then ignore the poor because they can offer little in return. But James in this passage, he's pointing out the overall effect of any sin on our relationship with God. I want to try to illustrate this in a way that maybe give us a mental picture of what, what he's talking about. And, you, and you, you can apply this other places where scriptures say if you break one law, you break the, all of it. But we tend to see God's rules like a fabric. And James sees them like glass. Here's what I mean. If you take some thin piece of fabric, very thin, and you and you string it up, you put it up on a rack or something, and you take a rock, a large rock, and you throw it through the fabric, punches a hole right through it, but the rest of it is is still intact. That's how we tend to see the law. Oh, broke that one. But the rest of it's good. James sees it like glass. If you take a, a pane of glass and put it up there, take the same rock, and throw it in the, hit it in the same spot that you hit the fabric, the whole thing shatters. You see that? Do you see what it, what it, how how it means? Listen, if I break one, I've shattered it all. Why is that? It's because that law is a reflection of the character of the one who who gave it. So if I break one part, I have. I have taken a shot at the very character of God. And when we, are, when we sin, we are rebelling against the very nature of God. That's why, you know, if, if you ask a lot of people, you say, uh, why is lying a sin? Some people would say, well, because my parents said so. That's wrong. Other people would say, well, lying is a sin because the Bible says it. Well, that's kind of right, but it's also kind of wrong. Why does the Bible say it? It's wrong to tell a lie because God is truth. When I tell a lie, I'm offending the very nature and character of God. See, this is, this is what we have to understand. This is what James understood, what we have to get. This is why you can't just say, oh, I've just got a little sin somewhere. I'm just, I don't need to deal with this. Because listen, if I've, it's, it's a pane of glass. It's the character of God. If I impugn the character of God in one area, I've impugned the character of God, period. 
But then verses 12 and 13, this is where James moves to, you know, great hope for us. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Then the last four words, mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, by discriminating, mercy is precisely what the believers were not showing when they insulted the poor. There's no mercy in that. And if they continued to discriminate, they would be in danger of facing their own judgment without mercy. What, what we do to others, we actually do to God. In the, you remember what Jesus said? He said things like, uh, when, you, when you do this to one of the least of these, my brethren, you do it unto me. So when we, what we do to others, we actually do to God, and then He returns it on our heads. And we stand before God in need of His mercy. So if I want Him to return mercy, I need to be a merciful person. Now, we can't earn forgiveness by forgiving others. We can't earn mercy, because then it's not mercy, it's, it's payment. But when we withhold forgiveness from others after having it re received it ourselves, when we withhold mercy from others after having received mercy ourselves, what we're doing is we show that we do not understand or we do not appreciate God's mercy toward us. However, our merciful actions are evidence of our relationship with Christ, and it is that relationship that vindicates us. So when I understand the mercy He has shown to me, when I understand that His mercy triumphs over judgment in my life, then I can show that mercy to others. And when I do that, it shows I understand the mercy He's given to me. But when I am unmerciful toward others, then it shows that I don't really get it. I don't really understand. When I don't forgive others, it shows that I don't understand the great debt that I owed him in the first place. That's the, that's the meaning behind the parable that Jesus told about the man who uh, was forgiven a great debt. And then he went out and he, uh, you know, I mean, in the great debt, it was like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, something he would never be able to repay in his lifetime. No chance at all of repaying it. And then he goes out and grabs another guy and says, hey, give me that hundred bucks you owe me. And then, and then he and the guy says to him the very same thing that he said to the other guy who forgave the great debt to him. But he, instead of forgiving the debt, he throws him into prison and he says, no, give me the money now or else. What, what that shows us is the guy who wouldn't forgive the small debt didn't understand or appreciate the great amount of forgiveness he had already received. Because if he had understood that, he would have looked at the guy and said, man, this is your lucky day. Today, I was forgiven hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. I don't need that hundred bucks. Your debt is forgiven, brother. That would be, this is what we're talking about here. The mercy we receive, we reflect it by giving it to other people around us. And because of God's character and because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we know that mercy triumphs over judgment. And because it has done that, mercy has triumphed over judgment in our lives we can now walk in that. We can live that out. And that very same faith can become reality in the way we treat other people. And I think that's the message 
that he's trying to get. Next week, we'll get into dead faith, um, but we're going to stop there for this evening. So why don't you bow your head together with me and let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that, uh, you that your mercy triumphs over judgment in our lives. And God, we want to be true followers of Christ. We don't want to be people who favor uh, those who can do things for us more than those who cannot. God, we want to, we want to embrace everyone around us equally. We want to uh, honor everyone around us in the best way possible because, Lord, we want to reflect to them, show them the love of Christ, the mercy of Christ, the, the forgiveness of Christ. We want to show who you are to the world around us. And so, God, I pray that you'd help us. Help us, Lord God, to see people differently. Help us to love people differently. Help our, the, the love that you flow, that you pour into our lives to flow through us, to touch them so that others would see Jesus and they would embrace you, Lord God. And uh, I just thank you for this opportunity that we have. Use us, God, we pray. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.